Okay, um, welcome everyone to uh, when Tuesday morning um, uh, class on this really beautiful spring morning. Isn't it lovely? And um, a special welcome to Eileen, who is our my, the one and only in-person person. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, and welcome everybody who's listening at home. So um, we'll start off with the liberating prayer. We'll do a meditation, a teaching and a meditation as usual. And again, I just want to encourage you to um, listen and feel the words in the liberating prayer. You may be in a position where it's new to you, so just enjoy. But you also may be in a position where you're familiar and maybe, dare I say, over-familiar with the words of the liberating prayer. So let's reset if that's, you know, if that's the position you find yourself in. And as I mentioned last week, um, almost every prayer, perhaps every prayer, and this one in particular, is um, a way to train in faith. So um, we believe that Buddha is present. We either see Buddha in front of us or feel his presence. And we, as we say the words, think about them as um, encouraging your believing faith, your admiring faith, your admiring Buddha, and your wishing faith. You're wishing you could be like that yourself. Um, okay, and also be especially alert to a Buddha precious treasury of compassion, because we're going to talk about compassion this week. Give me the light of your wisdom. 
dispel the darkness of my mind and to here. This is really feels like teaching a class. How wonderful. But wonderful that people who are listening at home too. Um, so usually what we do now is a breathing meditation. But today I thought it might be nice to um, try something a little bit different. So we've been uh, uh, thinking about exchanging self with others to really feel what somebody else feels. Um, in order to increase our compassion. So I thought it would be nice to try Shanti Deva's uh, method, which I will guide while we do meditation. Okay, so just a slightly different kind of meditation, but it's important also to start um, in a correct posture as usual, um, with a, a straight back, um, you're alert, but um, relaxed and your shoulders are relaxed in particular. Your neck is long, your head up. It could be uh, tilted slightly forward. Eyes closed, half closed. Breathing through your nose if possible. Feet, of course, feet flat on the ground. Or if you're sitting on a cushion, just make sure you're stable arms resting in your lap, hands in, uh, in your lap, right hand in your left hand, palms up, thumbs touching if that's comfortable. So that's the posture you might aim for, but really comfortable, be comfortable, alert, but make sure you feel relaxed. Right, just check your posture for a minute. Good, and now think about the room you're in, 
orient yourself. Right? Imagine what's above your head. Try to remember. And what's below you. Where the doors are. The windows. Try to increase your awareness of yourself in the space you're in. Place yourself. This helps you being here. You know, we say being here and now. Now in the present moment and here wherever you are. Feeling that you're placed in that there. If you're feeling warm or cool, if you can hear sounds, just become aware of all of that for a minute. Now simply spend a few moments watching the flow of your thoughts. Thoughts will come. Try to observe them from the outside. Just note them, acknowledge them, but don't try not to follow them. Just be a bystander, an observer. Now we're going to try to turn inward a little bit. Dismiss your thoughts if possible and concentrate on your breathing. Right? Notice how the air comes into your body and leaves your body. Notice your nostrils, the air entering at your nostrils might feel a bit cool when it leaves, when you exhale, maybe a bit warmer. You may feel it slightly ruffling your upper lip. Just spend a few moments trying to concentrate without disturbing thoughts on your breath. If a thought disturbs you, just send it packing. Tell it to go away. You're doing something else now.
Now we're going to turn our attention to Shanti Deva's method for exchanging self with others, for enhancing your exchanging self with others. So contemplate the following, please. In Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Shanti Deva explains a special method to enhance our experience of exchanging self with others. In meditation, we imagine that we exchange places with another person and we try to see the world from his or her point of view. Normally, we develop the thought I on the basis of our own body and mind, but now we try to think I, observing the body and mind of another person. This practice helps us to develop a profound empathy with other people and shows us that they have a self that is also an I and that it is just as important as our own self or I. This technique is particularly powerful when we apply it to someone with whom we have a difficult relationship, such as someone we dislike or see as our rival. I would suggest you choose a person that you are having mild difficulties with um, rather than going in at the deep end. So now imagine you are that person, the person you are having difficulties with, you mildly dislike, you find challenging, and try to see the world and the situation between you from this person's point of view. Try to see your conflict from this per person's point of view. Remember, you are this person. <coughs> we'll spend the next few moments imagining how this person sees you and the conflict you're having.
What are you feeling as this person? What do you fear? What do you hope? How do you see this whole situation? How do you see the world? If through, this if through this contemplation you reach a new understanding about your relationship with another, a more tolerant, respectful view, try to hold this for a moment at your heart. Try to hold this feeling. If you lose it, go back to becoming that person and seeing the world through their eyes. Before we arise from meditation, take a moment to hold whatever new understanding you may have gleaned from this meditation. Hold it at your heart. One moment.
Okay, you may now arise, please, in your own time for meditation. Okay, good, deep breath. Right, I think it's a powerful uh, method and um, one I've been trying. So I think even with people who have a slight problems with, works very well for me. Okay. So now, today, we're going to talk about uh, compassion, and um, we're going to talk about roads again. I'm so fixated on roads. Um, I'd like to thank Jane um, for letting me and Anna know that um, a sidewalk in uh, England is called a path, <laughs> or a footpath. And it's, a path sounds wrong to me anyway. It sounds like a a trail through the woods, um, I don't know, but so but be it. A, it's only a path if it's in the country. Oh. In the city, it's a pavement. It is a pavement. Oh, is. Okay, so we have we have several yeah. views on yeah. it. Okay, <laughs> pavement. Anna, you've got that pavement. Okay, right. Because I'm always calling it road. Um, who knows what different road is? The place where the cars go. Okay, <laughs> thank you for that. And. Um, I've been having a lovely um, email exchange lately with Eileen, and um, she commented that some of this motorway imagery is reminding her of Route 66. So that's all I had to hear. I had to look up Route 66 because it's so mythical. It's a real, um, it's really, uh, everybody's heard of it. You know, it's quite a wonderful thought. So it was actually created in 1928, and it, I have the miles. It covered 2,448 miles from Chicago to LA. That was the original one. But sadly, or happily, I don't know, it was taken out of service. Um, it was rerouted and renamed in 1985, so it no longer exists. It exists only in our minds, which is ra rather a nice thought. And also, um, when it did exist, there were many uh, businesses, fast food places, motels uh, along the route. And when they rerouted, they all went bankrupt. So, you know, again, it's impermanence, isn't it? Um, and I love the idea that whatever you turn your mind to, if your mind is full of Buddhism, everything is a teaching, you know, to see in per that's, you know, all these people who were, had thriving businesses until 1985 when they um, took poor Route 66 out of service. But it lives on in, our, in our, the minds of many. All right. So, um, you know, while I keep trying, you know, I keep beating this metaphor <laughs> to death, um, I think it's apt, and I really do want to emphasize that we are going somewhere, you know, that through um, the Lam Rim meditations, through the 21 meditations, we're making progress along a path, um, and we have a destination, Los Angeles. No, not Los Angeles, um, enlightenment, better than Los Angeles. Um, and the next stop on this route is great compassion. That's the 14th meditation 
in the uh, Lamrim meditations. So how have we arrived at the point where we're ready to develop great compassion? Well, we've arrived at that point through cherishing others. Um, when we cherish others, we pay attention to them. You know, at the very least, we really begin to um, look at others with a different kind of attention. And when we pay attention to people, we start to notice their feelings. And on the basis of equalizing, remember that way back, that meditation, on the basis of equalizing self with others, we share those feelings. We try to share those feelings. Um, then we attempted to go beyond empathy. That's, that's sharing those feelings is empathy, a kind of empathy. We, we um, then attempted to go beyond empathy and exchange self with others. So we've gone beyond sharing. This isn't sharing anymore. This is imagining what it would be like to experience the feelings of others and let go of our own feelings. It's quite an advanced teaching. But this is what we're aiming for. We may, we may not be able to do it right now, but you know, we're learning the, um, the ideas, the thinking, the reasoning. Um, so what, we try, what we're trying to do is walk a mile in someone else's shoes. It's a very useful idea. As a matter of fact, I, I started noticing people's shoes all week long. I used it as a trigger to remind myself to equalize myself with others. So it was a handy, you could try it too if, you, if it works for you. Um, I, you know, and I noticed the most amazing shoes on people. <laughs> Uh, I even saw somebody walking around in socks. Um, so, you know, uh, but that wasn't, I wasn't doing it for the purposes of, um, of just uh, shoe spotting, <laughs> uh, like bird watching. I wasn't doing that. I was using it as a trigger. So every time I thought, Margaret, look at the shoes, I thought, remember, you know, think about what it's like. C can, you, can you walk a mile in those shoes? Okay, so um, now we've arrived at this 14th meditation, great compassion. Um, so what is great compassion? And just, just so that I get this right, I'll read it to you exactly as Geshla tells it to us in, um, in his books. Great compassion is a mind that wishes to liberate all living beings from their suffering. So this isn't ordinary compassion, this is great compassion. Every time I've said that to myself um, while I was thinking about this class, I recalled this seductive Marks and Spencer's advert. I don't know if you've heard it. This isn't ordinary food, this is Marks and Spencer's food. And I don't know who they have speaking it, but you know, she's amazing. You know. <laughs> lead me to the Marks and Spencers. I'm like hypnotized. So um, anyway, this is not ordinary compassion. This is great compassion. So what's the difference, you might ask, between ordinary compassion and great compassion? And by the way, while I'm thinking about asking, as I have an audience uh, here, please feel free. I will stop for a moment and ask particularly if there's any questions. 
and I, I think I may have to repeat them so people at home hear. Um, but if you do have any comments or anything you want to ask as I go along, you know, it's just um, just us. So please feel free to ask if you're here. If you're not here in your home, maybe you could type something in and Anna will relay it. Okay, so what's the difference between ordinary compassion and great compassion? Well, in Buddhism, no compassion is ordinary. And I think we can understand um, what Geshla means as compassion, what Buddha means as compassion, as um, our capacity to cherish all living beings. That's all, universal compassion. Um, and that compassion is often called our Buddha seed, you know, which we all have. It's our potential for Buddhahood, for enlightenment, that compassion. And isn't it the perfect time to consider nurturing your Buddha seed? You know, everything's growing all around, bugs everywhere. Um, nice time of year to think, okay, this is the moment I'm going to um, germinate. I'm going to germinate. I'm going to flourish. Um, yeah, I'm going to grow that seed. Uh, so um, just going back to the, uh, to the exact um, definition, great compassion is a mind that wishes to liberate all living beings from their suffering. And there's two key words for me in this definition, liberate and suffering. Right, so I want to look at those words uh, in particular. Uh, I know you'd probably rather not. I'd rather not, but let's start with suffering. We're going to have to look at suffering today, so um, it's an important part of understanding uh, this uh, meditation. So who suffers and why? Um, when we cherish all living beings, um, and try to feel what they feel, we cannot help but notice. Often, we cannot help but notice that they're suffering. Sometimes we don't notice that they're suffering because it's hidden, but frequently, when we look carefully, we notice um, when people are really in pain or when there's some, some subtle sense that things aren't right. Um, so suffering is all around us, and I, for one, don't like the sound of that. I resist that. Um, but in order to um, deal with my objections and my resistance, I want to understand it a bit better. I want to understand what Buddha means by this. You know, why suffering? Who's suffering? How's, uh, how are they suffering? So that, I think that's the way to deal with um, my you know, reservations about going there. But, so I may not want to think about it, but I cannot help but see it. Um, so either I see it obviously, or we can also find it in others under a mask of well-being, contentment, and self-satisfaction. Right, so let's see um, what kind of suffering we're actually going to see. I think there are probably, just for simplicity's sake, um, I like breaking things down. There are four basic types of suffering. There's something we call manifest suffering. 
there's hidden suffering, there's um, pervasive suffering, and there's future suffering. And both pervasive suffering and future suffering are hidden suffering. So I'm going to try to explain them all and uh, discriminate between them. So manifest suffering is the one we're all familiar with. That's when we see people who are uh, suffering physically or mentally, um, when we see illness, when we see accident, when we see grief, when we see conflict, when we see war, hunger, people suffering natural disasters. This arouses our compassion most obviously. So this is the easiest kind of suffering to spot and usually the easiest to respond to manifest suffering. So um, I'm going to read a story now of a Sangha and Maitreya that um, is about manifest suffering from Transform Your Life, which I seem to be um, picking things, uh, I seem to be using this book a lot. And I know there's a new version called How to Transform Your Life, which I think I will buy so that I can give you page numbers uh, in case you want to, you have the book and want to reread. Okay, so this is um, quite a, a, a bit of a sad story um, with really interesting points to contemplate about compassion. Right. There are many accounts of spiritual practitioners who, by developing strong compassion, purified their minds of the negativity that had long been obstructing their spiritual progress. So we see that compassion is really important to make progress, a little bit of progress or a lot of progress. For example, a Sangha, a great Buddhist master who lived in India in the fifth century AD meditated in an isolated mountain cave in order to gain a vision of Buddha Maitreya. So Buddha Maitreya is one of the Buddhas. After 12 years, wow, 12 years, he couldn't say he wasn't trying. After 12 years, he still had not succeeded and feeling discouraged, abandoned his, re abandoned his retreat. On his way down the mountain, he came across an old dog lying in the middle of the path. Its body was covered in maggot-infested sores, and it seemed close to death. The sight induced within a sangha an overwhelming feeling of compassion for all living beings trapped in samsara, our present existence. As he was painstakingly removing the maggots from the dying dog, Buddha Maitreya suddenly appeared to him. The Buddha he was trying to see for 12 years suddenly appeared to him. Maitreya explained that he had been with a Sangha since the beginning of his retreat, but due to the impurities in a Sangha's mind, a Sangha had not been able to see him. It was a Sangha's extraordinary compassion that had finally purified the karmic obstructions preventing him from seeing Maitreya. In reality, the dog had been an emanation 
of Buddha Maitreya all along. Maitreya emanated as a suffering dog for the purpose of arousing a Sangha's compassion. We can see from this how Buddhas manifest in many different ways to help living beings. So that's a, a story I think about a bit. Um, thinking about suffering animals, of course, always arises compassion in many of us. Um, so we could see from that story that um, suffering that we might see around us, really great suffering, could be the emanation of a Buddha. We never know. We don't know. Um, you know, it's a magical interpretation, but why not? Buddhas emanate um, for the purpose of arousing our compassion. And there's no way of knowing whether you're seeing another living being or a Buddha. Um, it's also, um, I think, because it was actually a Buddha, it, something about that story makes me think we can't believe always what we see. Sometimes there's much more behind what we see. And of course, the story highlights how compassion is so important to, the realis to other realizations, to our advancement, our spiritual uh, growth. Okay, so that's manifest suffering, which we, um, we do know about, I think. And then there's hidden suffering. When someone tries to conceal their suffering. And when I think of hidden suffering, I always think of my mother-in-law, bless her. And um, the worse she felt, the more she had to hide it. Um, so... Oh dear, you know, and I never knew. I wasn't. I don't think I was reading the right signs. Um, she used to have what she called blinders, which were uh, migraines, and she would often say to me, "You know, when you were here last week, I had a blinder," and I never knew it. I felt so. I always felt very bad because, you know, her way of being and many people is to try to hide you know when they really feel bad and the worse they feel if they can keep going they continue to try to hide it so you may not see the suffering of others it may be hidden um, if you ask you know this is another um, American versus English story if you ask an American how they feel they often tell you you know, and, and they often tell you more than you want to know, and they often tell you without even asking. I always recall my parents lived in a high-rise apartment building in New York City, and they lived on the seventh floor, and the building had 21 floors. Uh, every time you got in the elevator, in the lift, and the door with somebody else, the doors closed, and they started telling you about their bunions or their bowels. And I was always so pleased to get off at seven because I shudder to think what I would have heard if my parents lived on a higher floor. You know, So is, that's not always a good thing. Um, but Americans are very, more than transparent about how they feel, whereas um, some of you English are much more hidden. And, you know, sometimes if you ask an English person how they feel and they say, not so bad, you know, I start to get worried. <laughs> and um, 
of Geordies in particular, if they say champion in a, in a certain way, you know, you, maybe you should ring 911, you know, it starts. Um, it's a very, you know, all of you English may not appreciate the fact it's a very difficult culture to read. It's very what we call subtextural. Everything is going on um, below the surface. And I think you have to be brought up with it. Um, I, you know, I'm still having trouble. Anna, do you have trouble reading it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it's a hard culture to read. It's very hard for the foreigner. And maybe one day I'll get the hang of it. I've been here a long time. I don't know. Sometimes people even say the opposite of what they mean. And I think really, um, it's hard to know. And they say it in, only, in a way that maybe only other, other English people really understand. And you do. You know, you're conversing on a subtextual level. Um, okay, so that's, that's the most gross kind of hidden, you know, most common kind of hidden um, suffering. We also have per, uh, pervasive suffering and future suffering. So what's pervasive suffering? Well, what pervasive means is omnipresent or always present. Um, and so pervasive suffering is maybe a low level of suffering that's always present. Because when something is pervasive, it's everywhere. There is nowhere it isn't. Right? So every day, every moment, every body is in samsara in our current existence is experiencing this you know low hum of suffering of dissatisfaction um, and uh, and more and probably more but it tells us that there isn't a single being in samsara who is not experiencing this and you know that that doesn't seem I you know I Again, I question that. My first thought is, really, huh? Um, and even those who don't appear to be suffering, even those who are whistling are suffering, and even those who appear to be fortunate are suffering. And, you know, you think, is that right? Could that be? You're joking. But no, Buddha is not joking. Everyone is suffering. So uh, even the rich, even the fortunate, so let's just hear a reading on that. We may find it difficult to feel compassion for the rich, healthy, and well-respected who do not appear to be experiencing any manifest pain. In reality, however, they too experience a great deal of mental suffering and find it hard to maintain a peaceful mind they worry about their money, their bodies, their reputation, their clothes, their designer bags. You know, we could go on and on. You get the idea. Like all other samsaric beings, they also suffer anger, attachment, and ignorance and have no choice but to undergo the sufferings of birth, aging, sickness, and death unceasingly and relentlessly, life after life, moment by moment, I would add. Moreover, 
their wealth and good conditions are utterly meaningless if through their ignorance they use them only to create the cause for future suffering. So we can see that um, really everybody is experiencing some kinds of suffering, even those who appear not to. Um, you know, as, as Geshela says, not only will we experience the suffering and pain of um, birth, we've already experienced that, sickness, aging, death, um, but we worry about it. We worry about it happening in the future. So we're, 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 even if it isn't happening right now, we're suffering that future anxiety about things that we know might be coming our not might, will be coming our way. Um, yes, and, and also, you know, this kind of low-level dissatisfaction we're always carrying around of, you know, getting what we don't want, having to put up with it, losing what we like. Um, you know, it's, it's all contributing to a kind of um, it's so, it's almost so low level that we don't recognize it. We just occasionally feel bad, really bad. Um, we suffer because in samsara we are all contaminated by this inner poison of delusions. We suffer because of our delusions. This is our human condition. And we can also say this is samsara. So if, if, it, if we ask the question, what is samsara? The answer is, or one of the answers, or probably the most useful answer I found is samsara is suffering. What is samsara? Samsara is suffering. So this cue, the sixth meditation, renunciation. So if you think that samsara is not suffering, and many of us do. I mean, this is a hard one to get your head around. You may need to strengthen and deepen your sense of renunciation. So you may want to turn back to the sixth meditation in the Lamrim Handbook and really think about how our present existence uh, is um, not uh, a bed of roses, a pleasure garden, and how there is a lot of suffering for everybody. Uh, renunciation is something, that means renunciation of samsara, is something that comes up a lot in all the meditations. And some people, if you're familiar with these meditations, if you're doing them for the first time or, you know, you're still quite new to them, um, maybe this is something you could put on the back burner. But if you're very familiar with these meditations, you might want to do each one with a sense of renunciation, whilst also thinking about renunciation. I know people do that. Sometimes they also do each one while thinking about emptiness um, or thinking about compassion. So those three are something that you can add to each meditation. They, they uh, seem to deepen them if you're familiar with them. Okay, so, you know, samsara's pleasures are deceptive. Um, Oh God, there's this image of samsara that always gets me, like licking honey off a razor blade. Ooh, it's just, it's a terrible one, isn't it? Um, so what's the connection between 
some sorrows, pleasures and suffering. Well, you know, we know this, I'll just remind you, you know, the pleasures of samsara don't last. They're not real pleasures because if they were, the more we indulged in them, the better we fee would feel. And we do know the more indul we indulge in chocolate, the more coffee I drink, oh dear, you know, I'm shaking and I love coffee. So, you know, the more we indulge, you know, the, they, they make us often unwell, certainly don't give us pleasure. Not only that, they stimulate our attachment and they end in an unpeaceful mind. So what appears to us as pleasure, samsara's pleasure, is really deceptive. Um, you know, there's that, that, that thought, can you appreciate the most beautiful sunrise if you've just had an argument with your partner? If you've just lost your favorite earring, one of your favorite earrings that your grandmother gave you, if you've just been passed over for promotion, you know, it, it, it poisons the most beautiful moments. So even the beautiful, what seems like the beautiful moments in samsara really depend upon a peaceful mind. Um, I will just read something to uh, underline that. Everyone in samsara experiences the suffering of not fulfilling their wishes. So many people find it difficult to satisfy even modest desires for adequate shelter, food, or companionship. And even if those desires are fulfilled, we have more to take their place. The more we get, the more we want. The more we get, the stronger our attachment becomes. And the more difficult it is to find satisfaction. The desires of samsara are endless. They appear to us as pleasures, but they are not. There is no such thing as an ordinary person who has fulfilled all of his or her wishes in samsara. But we need to take this with a grain of salt. Um, it's so different from what we normally think, from what we have grown up thinking, you know, that sunsets are beautiful, that, um, you know, a wonderful meal is wonderful with somebody you love or somebody you care about. So we have to take it easy. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need the chocolate. Sometimes we need that cup of coffee, that, that sixth cup of coffee we know is going to, send us, um, you know, shaking. Um, sometimes we need that takeaway. But begin to get your head around the idea that maybe these things that present themselves as pleasures are not as pleasurable as they seem. They are part of the suffering, the pervasive suffering of samsara. And that brings us to the last suffering, which is future suffering. So um, on top of everything else, um, we need, we often have to suffer, not often, always, we suffer this again and again in life after life. Hmm. So by engaging in negative actions triggered by our delusions, we all, all living beings, sow the seeds for our future suffering. 
And we can feel compassion for people who are doing. Therefore, you know, when we see somebody doing something we really disapprove of or um, is really um, non-virtuous, we can feel compassion for their future self, for what they're creating with their actions. So there is nobody in samsara that we, we, should, we, we can't feel compassion for. You know, even the thief, the murderer, the lout, you know, uh, really think about what their, what their future might be. Right, okay, so let's just return to the definition. Great compassion is a mind that wishes to liberate all living beings from their suffering. So let's look at liberation for a bit. Um, so great compassion, as we see, is compassion plus. It's compassion plus what? Plus determination to help people in the most meaningful way, which is to liberate them from their suffering. That determination. So it's compassion plus that determination. We can't bear to see this suffering when we see it, when we really exchange ourselves with others and we really get into somebody else's skin, we really walk a mile in their shoes, um, we see how much they suffer. And because of this, the natural feeling is, what can I do? How can I help? And of course, we can offer material help um, and support. But there's another kind of help, a really more fundamental help the Buddha tells us that we can give, and that is to try to free them from this prison of samsara. So the thought is we see the suffering, it's unbearable, what can I do? I myself, I'm taking responsibility, I myself am going to free other living beings from their suffering. This wish or determination really hastens us along the path because the only way that we can free others from their suffering is by becoming a Buddha ourselves, by inching or sprinting or walking towards enlightenment. That's the only real way we can free others from their suffering. So it's a very, it's a, such a powerful thought that it's almost like if your compassion is developed, it's like a house of cards or dominoes. These things almost begin to happen automatically. Your compassion rises. You feel the suffering of others. You automatically think, what can I do? And you know, then you come to this conclusion through your studying, through your reasoning, the only thing I can really do to help others is to liberate them from samsara. How do I do that? Buddha says, nourish your Buddha seed, your potential, you know, go for enlightenment. Okay, so um, we don't like to think of suffering, but it's all around us, both seen and unseen, and by acknowledging it, we progress towards a remedy, and that's Buddha's remedy 
gaining enlightenment for the sake of others. Right, so I'm finished. I forgot to ask the questions. Nobody said anything particularly burning to say anything. Um, I was just talking, talking, talking. I'll just give you a minute. Is there anything anybody wants to say? Comment, doesn't have to be a question, could be an observation or comment. And if not, fine also. But I give you the floor for a minute, both here and at home. Okay. I just talked, I probably just talked you into um, oblivion. I, I don't know, I'm sorry. I get going and I, I, get, I get excited. All right, let's try contemplation on today's topic. So let's assume uh, a correct posture. Um, and everybody knows what that is, I would think, but I will remind you. So, you know, we're sitting straight hands in our laps, feet flat, or we're very stable if we're on the, on the floor, back straight, that's so important. But you don't wanna be tense, relaxed. Take a minute and think about your surroundings. Just try to be present uh, in, in your environment, wherever that is. Take a moment and imagine yourself in that room, wherever you are. Where are you sitting in relation to the other things in that room? It just helps us to stay present. Determine to attempt to be both here and now. We're trying to forget the future, our worries, whatever thoughts are associated with that, to forget the past. Just try every time a thought interferes, just try to send it on its way. Tell it you'll deal with it later. You're doing something else now. Perhaps before we begin, generate a wish to use this meditation to benefit both yourself and others and try to hold this wish for a moment.
with a settled body and mind, try to contemplate the following. Great compassion is a mind that sincerely wishes to liberate all living beings from suffering. If, on the basis of cherishing all living beings, we contemplate their physical suffering and mental pain, their inability to fulfill their wishes, their lack of freedom, and how, by engaging in negative actions, they sow the seeds for future suffering, we shall develop deep compassion for them. No one actually wants to suffer, yet living beings create the causes of suffering because they are controlled by their delusions. We should therefore feel equal compassion for all living beings, for those who are creating the causes of suffering as much as for those who are suffering. There is not a single living being who is not a suitable object of our compassion.
living beings suffer because they take samsaric contaminated rebirths. Humans have no choice but to experience immense human suffering because they have taken human rebirth which is contaminated by the inner poisoning of delusions. I cannot bear the suffering of these countless mother beings trapped in the prison of samsara they have to experience again and again in life after life, endlessly the immense suffering of birth, sickness, aging, and death, having to part with what they like having to encounter what they do not like and failing to satisfy their desires. Having contemplated all this, we make the strong wish to free all living beings from suffering, remembering that suffering is the nature of samsara. So we wish to free all living beings from samsara. This wish is the object of our meditation to free all living beings from samsara, which is another way of saying to free all living beings from their suffering. Try to generate this wish and hold it, even if it's the slightest feeling. Hold it at your heart for as long as you can even if it's just for a moment. When you lose the feeling, 
return to the, the thoughts, the contemplations that occurred to you during the meditation and see if you can generate that wish again. Taking all the ideas, all the things we've read and have contemplated the teaching, just taking all of that and coming up with a single strong wish. I take responsibility. I must free all living beings from samsara. Now, before arising from meditation, recall your wish first to benefit both yourself and others, and then add to it the wish to free all living beings from the suffering of samsara and make a decision to keep this wish for as long as possible. Then mentally dedicate the merit gained in this meditation to that end, to the ability to keep that wish for as long as possible. Now, please, in your time, your own time, arise from meditation. Okay. Well, sobering. Uh, no? <laughs> All right, what should we do next week? Um, I always think a practice for the week is useful. Um, every time you see another being, next week assume they're suffering because they are um, look beyond uh, what what appears to you remember that hidden suffering the pervasive suffering we all feel and the future suffering people may be creating and if you do this consciously over and over again one day it will come to you spontaneously you'll just see another person and your compassion will swell up in you. Um, 
And so we may be inching towards that, but we will get there. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Melba. Yeah.